Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. Throughout this series, you've heard guests say that PDFs pose a challenge to barrier-free document access. This is one of the greatest challenges that our guests today see in their line of work too. Before we sit down for a conversation about accessible publishing with experts Kelly Dermody and Adam Chaborik, let's take a closer look at how and why accessible PDFs are a challenge, as well as what we can actively do to help create documents with fewer barriers. One of the reasons that PDFs are a challenge is due to the fact that accessibility starts at the beginning of the document design process. However, the layout artist or person formatting the long document doesn't always build this in or doesn't always know how to build it in. And I am just as guilty as anyone else for not doing this most of the time. To create accessible PDFs, first you must build an InDesign document that maps paragraph styles to export tags. You should also anchor images with the content flow, assign alt text to images, include internal document navigation through bookmarks and or table of contents and or hyperlinks to find content order and required metadata. Okay, so no wonder barrier-free PDFs are a challenge. But this stuff is also important. So let's figure some of this out. By building these tasks into our long document design workflow, we are doing work necessary now that our future selves and others who are using the PDF and require barrier-free access will thank us for later. All of this information that I'm about to share with you comes from Adobe directly. So first and foremost, paragraph styles. Do you remember that time that your lab instructor showed you how and why to use paragraph styles consistently throughout your document? Okay, well, there are many, many excellent reasons to take the time to set up and apply your paragraph styles. And here is another one. Consistently using paragraph styles and basing your styles on a hierarchical structure, for example, headings and subheadings, etc., you are inherently building in the necessary hierarchy into this document that will translate into a more accessible PDF. Second, establishing tag relationships. Inside of the paragraph style options dialog box, there is a section where you can assign each style to an export tag that builds a relationship between the style you have used in InDesign and PDF tags when it's exported as a PDF. For example, these tags include paragraph, or the letter P, heading levels 1 through 6, H1 through H6, or artifact. This saves a lot of time later and it just helps InDesign communicate necessary tagging information when it becomes a PDF file. Next, anchoring images. When there are images in a long document, sighted users are able to see the image and read the text and make the connection between the two. 
Alternatively, however, screen readers and assistive technologies require images to be placed as close as possible to the text that they are related to, because it, of course, reads it linearly. So InDesign makes this easy by dragging and dropping objects, anchoring it in the right place, in the right reading order, in a way that doesn't affect the print layout. Pretty cool. Next is adding alt text. Well, I think you've heard this uh, once or twice or six times by now, but let's remember to add alt text to images. You can add alt text within the object export options in InDesign. Next, we need to include internal document navigation. Remember that time that your lab instructor showed you how to create an automated table of contents? Okay, I promise to stop asking these questions, but it is really important to incorporate and cross-reference and hyperlink and bookmark to create navigation within the document itself. So build that table of contents that can help readers navigate the document using these internal links. Next, content order. The articles panel in InDesign is really powerful for establishing a reading order. While excellent typographic practice, including balanced marking and spacing, will make a document more readable for sighted users, tagging content in InDesign makes a document more readable for visually impaired users who rely on assistive technologies. So dragging and dropping frames and objects into the articles panel allows you to then rearrange them in the desired reading order without affecting the page layout. Also pretty cool. Next, we have metadata. An interesting tidbit of information is that a PDF file requires a document title and a document description of its contents, not only for accessibility, but also for good search engine optimization. By adding this information to the InDesign file information dialog box, it automatically transfers it to the PDF as metadata. And finally, export your accessible PDF. When you are finished with your InDesign document and you are ready to export it as a PDF, use the settings that optimize accessibility, whether that's through a print or an interactive PDF. All of the information that you have so diligently built into the file, including tagging and organizing and establishing hierarchy, translates into a more accessible PDF in the end. This isn't the end of the road for a perfectly accessible barrier-free PDF, but it's going to get you a long way to getting there. You're almost there at this point. By understanding how to build this fundamental accessible functionality into an InDesign document, you are miles ahead of most page layout artists when it comes to usable, functional PDFs for persons of all abilities. Today's guests are Kelly Dermody, an e-learning and accessibility service librarian, and Adam Chaborik, a digital accessibility consultant and front-end web developer. Now, both of our guests will introduce themselves and walk us through the current state of accessible publishing, including how technology has evolved in the last 15 years, as well as barriers that still exist today and what the library is doing to make accessible documents even more accessible. Finally, Kelly and Adam describe the ways in which technologies, including artificial intelligence, will not remove all barriers to accessibility and why humans will remain at the forefront of inclusion efforts for the foreseeable future.
My name's Kelly Dermody. I've been at Ryerson since 2005 and I'm a professional librarian at the Ryerson University Library. And I, my first job was actually to create our accessible formats program. And so what that is, is students with print disabilities, either a visual disability, a physical disability, or a learning disability that prevents them from reading a traditional textbook or you know, your traditional course readings. Um, we transcribe those into Word or PDF, and then those students use a form of assistive technology to have um, their readings read back to them, like kind of in an artificial voice. And so I started that in 2005. And I also work on all policies related to accessibility in the library. We do captioning of our films for students with hearing disabilities. Various other, you know, library duties, um, work on the reference desk. I'm the subject librarian for music, philosophy, and psychology. And I also do e-learning for the library, so creating online modules on how to research. Um, well, okay, uh, thanks, Kelly. Um... I'm Adam Chaborik and I'm the university's IT accessibility specialist. And um, in my role, I support the whole entire university in ensuring that Ryerson's online environment is accessible to all. I like to think of myself as the in-house digital accessibility consultant. So I help uh, various people across the university from web developers, content authors, um, folks who work in marketing and communications and procurement, kind of all, all aspects of the university and ensuring um, ensuring that uh, we're meeting our digital accessibility uh, obligations and ensuring that yeah Ryerson is an inclusive space at least the at least I'm responsible for the digital side of that fantastic and that's those are two such important roles uh, that each of you play in helping students access and and be able to to kind of use the materials in ways that work for them now I have a question for you Kelly um, so when did you establish the library's accessible material service and kind of was there a catalyst that pushed this into fruition? Why, why was this necessary? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was um, actually, it was, the job was created in 2005 because there wasn't anyone at the university really in charge of making sure that there was an accessible, it, there was a service for accessible formats for students with print disabilities. Um, they just had secretaries or kind of students, any, anyone they could kind of pull in to, to do this and they were actually having students read onto a tape recorder. So they were doing like kind of old fashioned books on tape. So they would hire work study students, they would come read a chapter and record it and then give it to the student who had a print disability. And I mean, that just took forever. Students with print disabilities were falling behind in their courses. They weren't getting their textbooks on time. So I was a new graduate, just fresh out of U of T and library school. And they said, go out and find out how other universities do this and establish a program. So I went out to Queens and U of T and you know, all the Ontario universities and realized you know, many were using um, software. So scanning the book using optical character recognition, OCR, to make the book readable. Um, and then the screen reader can read that. So the screen reader can read any book that has had OCR. Um, for many of my students, the preferred format is is Word, so putting a PDF into Word, like copy and pasting it into Word and that. Um, and some students still did prefer the book on tape, but we have artificial voice now that can read the, the text back. But again, it has to be in a very clean type of Word format for the um, text-to-speech software to read it back, right? So there's a lot of manipulation of the text that we have to do. 
And so we have about, about 100 students a, a, a semester. And, you know, each student takes about four to five courses. Each course has a textbook. So it's a lot of readings that we, we have to do. Um, we've been very lucky that many publishers will give us the PDF of the textbook. So it's almost the preprint of the textbook they'll give us. Uh, and um, we just, prom you know, the student has to physically buy the book so that the publisher gets paid back and the publisher has a sign an agreement that the student has a print disability, uh, but no medical documents are released. It's just a on word on, on, con on a good faith contract. And then we can take that like preprint PDF and we can transcribe it into Word or we can give it straight to the student if they prefer PDF. So that was kind of the catalyst was that there was no one and then hitting the ground and looking at what other universities was doing and over the years establishing the program and it's it's been there for 16 years. So we're, um, we're pretty established now. <laughs> and how has the technology changed? From I'm just curious from 2005 to now, I mean, things have changed probably a lot in that world. Yeah, Dr dramatically they, they've changed. I'd say one is also service, like, and, and understanding has, has been the biggest impact. If I could just go to that part. At, at the beginning, publishers wouldn't give us files. They're very nervous, right? I don't really want to give you the PDF. Maybe the student will share it. And they've come around, and it's so easy now to just put in the request and get the PDF. When they refuse to give us the PDF, we would have to scan, right? We'd have to get the library book or the book from the bookstore and have a student physically scan the entire book. And we are allowed to do that under copyright. That is okay under Canadian copyright because it's for a person with a print disability. And so we've seen huge improvements in service from the publishers. Before, file size used to be a problem sending it through email, but now we have cloud and it's, it's just revolutionized how we, we send stuff. We used to have to put things on USBs, USB keys and CDs just to get the files to the students. And now it's all over cloud. Same with the publishers. They just give us access to their cloud server to, to pull the files. Scanners have improved so much. It used to take hours to scan a book and now they're, they're so much faster. Um, the optical character recognition software, um, there's, for example, we use both Adobe Acrobat and Abbey Fine Reader and they've just come along so far. I guess I'll speak, we'll speak later to it um, in the podcast, but we are also getting a new service that is cloud-based and it converts to a whole bunch of different formats. So students or faculty could upload a PDF and they could get back an MP4, they get back a Word file, they could get back uh, an EPUB. Just this new service will allow them to um, get back files in multiple formats. And what are the most common, uh, commonly requested accessibility services by students or staff or faculty? For me, I mostly serve students. The majority of my students, I would say, actually have vision and it's more of a print, uh, a learning disability. So their preferred format is PDF, um, especially that preprint from the publisher. It's it's just exactly like the textbook, except in, in PDF. And it's easier for them to run it through their program and um, help it, their program helps them read it. Like it might have a bouncy ball on each word or it speaks it back to them. Um, and then the second format for my students who have more visual disabilities is Word. Word is just so much easier for a, a screen reader. So of course that's more time consuming because we have to take the PDF and, and put it into Word. And then the second service that we offer in the library is that students can come and see me for one-on-one -on -one help researching 
Um, unfortunately, many of our library databases and our websites are inaccessible for students who use screen readers. So they often will have to sit with me and we'll do the research together. So that's one of the barriers that still exists is the websites and library databases being very inaccessible to screen readers. And Adam, I think you have more insight into helping faculty. In my role, I'm more of a consultant. So I usually train people on how to create more accessible content. Um, when it comes to staff and faculty in terms of support, um, it's not necessarily services I provide, but I do sometimes assist on the support side of things, whether that's uh, diagnosing problems with uh, any assistive technology issues. But um, when it comes to, if I, well, maybe not so much what kind of uh, documents that they need, but we see a lot of challenges with um, PDF and uh, that's a mostly specific to people who are blind who use assistive technology or screen readers. Um, PDF as a format tends to pose a lot of problems and um, well, traditionally, historically speaking, PDF is a print-based medium. Uh, I can get really complex really into the details of PDF, but it does pose a lot of problems and it is a little bit more difficult to uh, make accessible just because of things can get very complex when you talk about like the, the tag, uh, the tag structure or reading order. So uh, when it comes to, yeah, it depends on who the audience is. Like I said, I mostly work on figuring out issues. <laughs> I'm more of a problem solver as, as opposed to someone who does, I don't do any kind of alternate format uh, conversions in my position. Um, my goal is to train people to um, do those conversions themselves. And Adam has great handouts for everybody at the university on how to create accessible PowerPoint and how to create accessible documents in the first place. So I'm always sending people to, to those documents. They're on the accessibility website uh, at Ryerson. Um, and it's all about like if, if it's created accessible from the very beginning, it means when the student comes to me, I can hand them something already made accessible, right? It's me, my job becomes harder when I have to do all these remediation because it was created in an inaccessible PDF in the first place. Right. Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen Adam's uh, resources and they're they're really incredible and really helpful uh, and in creating my own presentations and and I've used them before myself. So I, I know exactly what they are. And, and you're right that building inaccessibility from the beginning is is not a difficult thing to do so long as you understand kind of those little tips and tricks and things that make it that much more accessible. It could be just you have to click two extra buttons or type in a little bit of extra text, but it makes the world of difference for someone who is receiving it on the other end who requires those uh, those accessibility considerations. Now, the question, the next question I have for you is perhaps it's, it's kind of a bigger question, but how do we as educators in a large university help facilitate barrier-free learning experiences for our students? So how can we make our classroom experiences more accessible? And perhaps, Adam, you can speak to this as well in those, those uh, kind of documents that were just mentioned. Well, I think the, uh, one of the most important things is just, um, well, first off is awareness and, um, many people are very quick to say that because it's true it's just um, a lot of people don't seem to take the time to 
learn or read up on what it means uh, to create accessible content. We do work here at the university, especially in the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching on what's called Universal Design for Learning. And so UDL for short is really about changing the professor's mindset on how to teach to make it more inclusive. Not we it's yes, it's for accessibility. So technically it is designed for in creating accessibility in the classroom for students with disabilities. But the motto of it is that it ends up being beneficial for all students. So the metaphor that they use is the curb cut. So the curb cut was put in the sidewalk so that wheelchairs you know could get down safely onto the road and come up the other side at the end of the road and then it ended up benefiting women in strollers you know men and women pushing strollers people with luggage you know the rolly bags so it was designed for one and ends up helping others so when you think about oh let me make sure that my material is all accessible before i teach this course let me share it with everybody in an accessible format all of a sudden students without disabilities are like, thank you, you know, I like to listen to my textbooks. I'm, I'm more of a person who listens to my textbooks or, you know, thank you for having this document in Word. I, I was able to copy and paste some notes from it, right? So having accessibility in mind ends up benefiting all of your students, right? So it's, it's a complex uh, system, universal design for learning because you have to really rethink your teaching. You have to kind of sit down maybe during the summer and think, through your syllabus and change some things and in the classroom think of different ways to do um, tests. Um, so we've we've done a lot of seminars and we've gone out and you know um, spoke about it to a lot of faculty here at Ryerson and and many especially younger professors like like the idea because one of the things is it's kind teaching right it's it's not about catching your students out. It's about making sure they learn, right? So giving them different examples for a really hard complex, you know, okay, let's watch a video on this complex, complex. let's do an activity on this, this, this thing, right? Let's make sure you understand it before we move on. And a lot of, um, you know, TAs and young faculty are like, oh, I like that because I didn't have that when I was an undergrad, uh, undergrad right? So I think there is a movement towards it for kind of this accessible, inclusive and and kind in a way, um, teaching that really thinks, am I serving out all my students or all my students needs being met? And if I meet this need here, I'll probably end up helping more than I thought. Absolutely. And I, in my own courses, I, I try to think through that UDL lens and probably it comes across more in some courses than others, but I'm always constantly thinking about ways in which I can make access for everybody that much more, uh, as you say, kind, enjoyable, making sure that people understand the content versus mm -hmm. versus just kind of sink or swim and figure it out. I think uh, flexibility is very important as well for people or when instructors are developing content and um, offering things in different formats or having uh, different ways of assessment, multiple ways of assessment, yeah. Absolutely. Are there any new technologies or improvements on perhaps existing technologies when it comes to making the world of publishing and books more accessible? It's really hard to say. I think, like I've mentioned before, the publisher sharing the preprint of the PDF is, is wonderful. And that really helps one sector, which is um, people with learning disabilities because they still have the, the, vis or the vision to see the beautiful PDF and, and ebooks, 
can be as well. Um, you think because we move into eBooks more, especially when we went online, that, oh, this was going to be great, but eBooks tend to be inaccessible. Um, many of the eBooks here at the, in the library are locked. They're in a platform. You can't download them. You can't manipulate them. And so screen readers don't do well with them, right? And, and so sometimes in publishing and, and, and education, you see these advances, you see new systems coming on, new ways of learning. And then when you run it with a screen reader, you're very disappointed because it's actually inaccessible, right? Like it's leaving students behind, right? It's leaving our students with visual disabilities behind. Um, and then we have to come up with these workarounds. And sometimes fancy is not the way to go, especially with, with screen readers. Sometimes just text on a page that is so accessible um, as opposed to columns and call outs and things that, you know, caught like bubbles and stuff like that, that ends up just not working. You see a shiny tool, but you really got to think first if, if it's gonna be a shiny tool that all the students could use. And sometimes it's not. And this is kind of the problem just in general um, in today's day as technology is so fast evolving. Oftentimes accessibility is playing catch up and or a lot of these companies are playing catch up when it comes to making their product accessible. Um, a lot of these large com companies are so quick to release and quick to publish new features. Although, like I said, accessibility is, is always sometimes or in a lot of cases an afterthought and it ultimately impacts students at the end of the day um, or especially or if we're thinking about education and um, just to go back to what Kelly was saying about those ebooks yeah some of the publishers they'll release or they'll share a pdf but for example um, to save on space um, they'll usually save it without any kind of a semantic markup or the tags that really give meaning to someone who's using a screen reader when they're navigating and then even when it comes to the platforms, it's just um, whether or not the platform is accessible. Um, so whether it meets the web content accessibility guidelines, does it follow the standards? So a lot of barriers in kind of not just the actual content or the medium, but also just the platform. That's so interesting about eBooks because I, so for example, I'm teaching a course in typography right now, and our textbook is available as an eBook through the university's library. And I love that. I love that it's just there and I can find it. But of course, I don't necessarily have any additional need to, to access it in a different way. But I, I think that I'm doing good by my students or doing well by my students, but perhaps there's a few that aren't aren't able to access it in the same way. And I just had never thought that that would have been an issue, but it makes tons of sense because oftentimes we have these, um, th these rules that govern eBooks that are a little bit different than printed books or print copies. And so it's just that much more difficult to manipulate a, a an eBook um, and, and a screen reader would be no exception. So that's, that's very interesting. And so what's the solution to that? <laughs> Do we have a solution to... So th there are different platforms and I, I feel like publishers are getting a little bit better when it comes to uh, ensuring um, their their content or textbooks are accessible. But I find a lot of times it's just a lack of consistency. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on the type of or the education or the subject. Um, but I have seen platforms that um, 
are doing that are really cool. Um, uh, the library hosts uh, the Pressbook platform. What's really innovative about Pressbooks is that you can uh, view these open education uh, or these open textbooks in different formats. You can, uh, the default view is just like, it's just a, it's just a web page. Honestly, it's just HTML, um, but you can also download the textbook as a PDF, um, EPUB, whole bunch of different uh, outputs. And for the library world, it really is about lobbying. I mean, we, we spend millions on these products and that's, I mean, all the universities in America and here, right? And they're supposed to be accessible. Um, in America, they have to fall under the Americans with Disability Act and here in Ontario, they have to fall under the Accessibility for Ontarians Disability Act, right, the AODA. And we lobby them and we say, you know, this is not good enough. And they do improve a little bit, but it's slow. It is slow. Um, we need, I think, more mass, like push to say, you know, make it accessible. We're giving you money for this product. <laughs> or at least have some type of remediation process for us. Like, okay, I know you, you need to have it locked down because you're very worried about piracy and stuff like that. But if you just had a different portal for students with disabilities somehow to get like the accessible version or like a very fast turnaround when I put in the request to say, my student can't read this ebook, do something. That's what I would like to see in the future. And do you find that most publishers have an accessibility expert or someone on like within their staff that, that can answer these questions? They've been slow on that. Um, they've improved, like, as I said at the beginning, I would just be emailing everybody at Pearson Canada or McGraw Hill, like who's, who, who do I talk to? And then finding the right person. And it was never an accessibility expert. It was just like someone who did pre-print or post-print and being like, here's the issue. And then them giving me the file, but they've come a long way now. They have like an accessibility part of their website. Uh, they work with accessibility uh, clearing houses, like repositories. Um, we have one here in Ontario called Arrow. And then in the States it's called Bookshare. Um, so in the 16 years, they have started to invest in like having a person who contact for accessibility, but it's, it's in terms of getting that file, right? Because every university in North America was asking them for that file because every university has a student with a print disability. So that's why they came up now with the program. I've seen big database vendors like library database vendors have an accessibility testing committee where they will ask students to help test their products and they'll show a commitment, right? Because they are an educational product and in America, they're under the, AO, the ADA. So they have to do this and they'll release reports. Oh, we had our students test the database. And you do see improvements. You do see every release. Oh, they've made this a little bit friendlier, but it's still not a hundred percent there. I, I think there's always this push and pull between they want to make it pretty and, you know, and have all these different features. And um, if that interferes with the screen reader, oh, well, right. Um, we'll, we'll get that the next iteration. I know a lot of these, a lot of the content is traditionally PDF. And um, I think a large barrier um, with these publishers is just the kind of uh, complexity and time commitment for large textbooks. PDF as a medium, it's over 20 years old. And, um, in terms of advancements or innovations, um, even still to this day with the latest version of Acrobat, for example, it is not straightforward and intuitive to creating like a PDF UA compliant document. 
Um, so there's, I think there's those technical challenges and just like resources. So um, I think with uh, what's missing in a lot of these tools is just um, how can these tools um, teach people how to make more accessible PDFs, for example, like, or what, is there anything in these tools um, that can literally assist or facilitate that? And I feel like that's, uh, that's missing. And um, that's why PDFs still tend to be such a large barrier, at least in higher, edu higher education institutions. Yeah, how do we build in the really straightforward functionality within a PDF to make it a no-brainer that you would think about or incorporate some accessibility features versus having to go in and into the background and into the code or into, um, as you said, the semantic markup and, and really know a lot of the technical background and know it's very, very tech heavy still. Are there any projects larger in scope? I know, Kelly, you kind of alluded to this already, but are there any projects larger in scope yeah. that the library is currently working on to mm -hmm. enhance accessibility for students, staff, faculty? What's, what's new? What's happening? So we just acquired a, a new product called Census Access and uh, me and Adam are working on it, getting it rolled out to the university. And so it's just going to be a website on our, you know, on the library and eventually maybe inside of our course shells where you can take any document that's inaccessible. So it's like a PDF that's all only image, any document that you want to convert to another format that's accessible. So you just upload it and then you pick your format output. So it could be EPUB, it could be accessible PDF, it could be Word, right? So you can convert a PDF to a Word um, and it could be an MP3. So you could listen, it'll has an artificial voice and it'll give you back an MP3 of your file. So, you know, your chapter read to you um, and it'll be open to, to anyone, to all students, faculty and staff. So we're hoping because right now, you know, a student or staff or faculty member has to come to, to my office to get something done. You know, they have to wait, you know, if it's midnight, we're not there. So we're hoping this new product kind of gives people independence. And we're hoping that it also sets this mindset where someone's like, well, I've created a PDF or I've created this thing. Um, let me produce it in a couple of formats so that I am really accessible. And then they could do it themselves. And, you know, faculty, when they're creating something could be like, let me put this in a different format um, before I put it up on my course. Or this is a PDF and I know I have a student who has a visual disability. Let me convert this to Word, you know, not having to go to the library because it's just one page, right? So we're hoping it's kind of a self-service that people will use to uh, create accessible documents. Be Students with disabilities can be a little bit more independent. They're always welcome to come to us. We'll always remediate because um, it's not 100% perfect this program, nothing nothing really is um, compared to like me and my colleague Sonia fixing things. <laughs> but it's just a it's just a program we're excited about because it'll just kind of offer, you know, another venue for making things accessible. Oh no, I was just gonna I was just gonna add to that. Um, you know, you brought up a really important point that these automated solutions aren't going to produce a hundred percent accessible results. Uh, I, I won't go too much into detail, but. Um, You'll probably see a lot online now about um, these third-party uh, accessibility solutions that are powered by AI, quote-unquote powered by AI, offering or promising a 100% accessible and compliant um, solutions. But um, I would be very wary about, very careful about these uh, promises that they make. And um, because it's true, their AI can't solve 
100% of accessibility barriers and issues. It's really important to remember that accessibility is all about human experience and AI can't quite capture what that really entails. It's really important to test with humans, you know, test with people with, who have actual disabilities. Um, but services like um, the one that Kelly was mentioning allow someone to be more independent, really important. And we, we do find with these programs at the very beginning, they probably get you 60% of the way. So when you use access census, you'll probably still notice about 40% mistakes, maybe even more. But the same with AI, um, we use AI for captioning. And at the beginning, it was horrible. It was like just tons of mistakes. And now the program we use, Otter AI, is I think there's only 80 to 90%, 80 to 90% perfection. Like I'm only correcting one or two words sometimes, right? So there's always human intervention. There's always needs to be human touch for accessibility. There always has to be someone that you can reach out to, to, you know, correct and make it perfect. But the programs get us, uh, you know, they're getting us more along the way than, than in the past. And so that's, it's better than, than nothing. <laughs> I'm always amazed at the closed captioning abilities, even just like the auto closed captioning on YouTube or even the live closed captioning within a within a Zoom meeting. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's gotten a lot better in recent years. Yeah. That's that's my hope for this product too, um, is that it'll get it closer. I mean, we always joke in, in my uh, service area that like, you know, we want to be put out of work. We want like just a successful future where, where we don't have to do this remediation for students, right? They shouldn't have to, it's not equitable that they have to go to us and wait for us to do something. It should be available to them in the first place. I just love eventually for that to happen and to just be there kind of like, what was it? The Maytag repairman where he would just sit in his office and <laughs> wait for someone to, to repair a Maytag, you know, need to repair. So I, I'd, I'd hope to be like that someday where, where, you know, students can do it independently or can have equitable access to their, to their readings. I think that's a really good segue to my final question for you both, which is, in your opinion, where is there still room for significant improvement as it pertains to technology and the dream of a barrier-free world? I still like to think... Um... The awareness is a huge part of it and um, just baking it in uh, to your company's culture. If you create digital tools, um, you're not going to be able to have a truly accessible product unless you're thinking about it from the beginning and thinking. And um, if everyone on the development team is thinking about it and also just actually involving people with disabilities in that process. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, um, we're, we're as quick as we want to move forward, people are going to left out if that's if that if those people aren't being included in the conversation. No, no, that was uh, that was perfect. What Adam said. <laughs> yeah, really well said, Adam. I completely agree that there needs to be this kind of push on at the beginning of a project to really make sure that accessibility is considered. But then, uh, when a product's about to launch, having individuals actually test it, have humans use it, play with it. And go back for revision, feedback loops, all of those good things, which will, will hopefully build a more accessible future for all of us. Thank you both so much, Kelly and Adam, for joining us today and sharing your experience and your knowledge and your wisdom in this world of accessibility. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you.